Well, we are building up to next week when we begin the uh, building of the temple. And I've been looking forward to that aspect of Solomon's life. It encompasses, obviously, several chapters of 1 Kings. And uh, we are going to uh, chart our way through it and see how it was done and by whom and the uh, dedication of the temple as well and the process that is involved there. It is something that has been in the works for a while, all the way back to David. Remember, it was in David's heart to do this, and God said, you're not qualified to, to participate in that. But before we get to that, we really just have a, a last overview of Solomon's uh, rise to power, his, his uh, giftedness in wisdom, and his administration uh, of his reign over Israel. And so we have that described for us in a couple of different ways. Uh, the way that the Israelites measured success uh, was, um, interesting enough, after this morning's uh, service and the series we're doing there in the morning out of Jude, um, is uh, how many people you are feeding every meal. So one of the ways to measure success is how many people do you feed every mealtime at your table, uh, also, of course, in addition to that, were, was the uh, uh, proliferation of things we often associate with success of uh, goods and monies, and also, as we're going to see, uh, the access, the access, not access, the access to uh, exotic things that just aren't normally in Israel, and we're going to see a lot of that as well. And remember that God's promises to Israel, a little different than his promises to the church, God's promises to Israel, which extend even into eternity, I believe, um, they're everlasting promises, and that is they will have a land described as flowing with milk and honey. They will have a land, a place, they'll have peace, self-safety. Um, this is God's promise to Israel, and that's why I believe when we get to the description of Revelation of new heaven and new earth, why do we need a new earth? Well, God had a promise, and that promise was that there would be a land flowing milk and honey for his people. Uh, that's very different than our promise. What Christ Jesus promised the church is a lot narrower. It is where I go, you'll be with me. Um, and that's why on the new Jerusalem, or on the new earth, you'll have the new Jerusalem, and where typically the things we describe as, as heaven are describing the new Jerusalem, where there is no darkness, there's no night, uh, and yet we find on the new earth that there are seasons and months that go by. There's a measurement of time. Time doesn't cease to exist. And on the new earth, you have all of that, but in the new Jerusalem, you do not because Christ is the light on the new Jerusalem. And so it is uh, described in that fashion. And, um, and it's interesting that the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are the apostles. Uh, when you think, well, no, the, the tribes came first. But that's not the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. It's the apostles. And the 
doors, the gates, the 12 gates to New Jerusalem are named for the tribes. Well, foundation stones are permanent. Gates are there for people to come in and out of, right? So it tells you who's going to be the permanent residents of the New Jerusalem and who are going to be able to come in and out of. Uh, and so uh, there's still access there. We're not saying that none of Old Testament Israel is going to be there in New Jerusalem, but rather that we who have been grafted in have um, our expectation is to be ruling and reigning with Christ and to be with him forever in all the joys that are involved in that. So this is the measure that is used, um, and some of those are we're very familiar with. There's a few of these measures that are going to bother us as we go through of how he succeeded, and some of this is just a matter of the expectation of, I'm going to call it keeping up with the Joneses, that this is what all great nations have and do. Uh, and obviously Solomon is going to do that, and he's going to um, exceed that in the other nations, uh, but there's a difference between having some of these things and implementing them as we're going to see. So let's, uh, we're picking up at 1 Kings chapter 4 uh, in the New King James, and uh, if you have the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, Septuagint, the Greek Orthodox Bible, um, you have an extra chapter in here. There's some repetition of some in information about Solomon's wisdom uh, that is given to you twice. And so you have a little bit of distinction of chapter divisions. And we're not, we're, we've already looked at some of that last week. And so we're into chapter 4, verse 1. And so it says that uh, so Solomon, King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. And they're going to go through and list all the officials there. I'm not going to read all of these names. Um, I want to go on to verse 7. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. And it then goes through and gives the, the listing of those 12 governors, some of Sometimes there's more than one because they shared it, the responsibility. Um, but we have that, and we jump all the way down to verse 20 now. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree." From Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man his month, provided food for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largest of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. 
for he is wiser than all men. And Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Talcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 5,000. He also spoke of trees, from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And so we have this description given to us, and I want to uh, go a little bit farther ahead so that we can um, see the uh, description of <laughs> how things were uh, wealth-wise. And if you go to chapter 10, jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 14. It says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold, besides that from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country. And so there's the governors again that we just read of. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round at the back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the armrests. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom." All, Solomon's, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold, and the vessels of the house of the force of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Every, once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his present, articles of silver, of gold, of gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. Also Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kive. The king's merchants brought them in, in Kive at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus through their agents they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. We're going to stop right there. So we have this description. Remember that when Solomon asked for wisdom, God says, ask whatever you want, and he asked for wisdom. God was so pleased by his request. He says, well, you've asked for this. I'm going to give you that. But I'm, in addition to that, I'm going to give you what most people ask for. I'm going to give you the wealth. I'm going to give you the success. I'm going to give you the notoriety that other men normally ask for. Even though you didn't ask for, I'm going to add to these. Now, the added sections were dependent remember the add the addition of wealth and prosperity and all that was dependent 
um, the wisdom was independent. That is, that wisdom was going to be secured, um, but it says the other one is dependent if. And I've given you what you have not asked. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3. Uh, if you walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And so we have a, a dependentness there that uh, if you want this to continue, if you want this to go on for an extended period of time, you need to walk in my ways. And so um, the, the promise there is, is, is pretty clear. I'm going to give you all of this, but if you want it to continue, if you want it to persist uh, and lengthen your days with this kind of, of blessing, then you're going to have to walk in my ways. You're going to have to obey my statutes and my commands. So there's a uh, requirement there of him. But in terms of that wisdom, God says, no, I'll, that's yours. That I'm going to give that to you. will not be rescinded. So we come into uh, his reign. And you might say, well, we even skipped reading all of these names. Uh, and we have them described here of who are these that are reigning with him and their responsibilities. So we have who's the, uh, the scribes or the recorder, who are the priests, who's over the army. Um, we have, uh, and one is just, and the king's friend. Uh, would you like that? To be Nathan, a priest and the king's friend. Um, Zabod, the son of Nathan, sorry. Uh, and Abishar, verse 6, who is over the household. And so he's just in charge of overseeing the palace. And Adoniram, son of Abda, over the labor force. So he had, he had broken up the administration of his government into these departments, if you will. Uh, and very similarly, we have done that where, and you do realize that the president's cabinet is really not a constitutional uh, requirement. It's and these are bureaucrats. That is that they are not elected people. They are appointed people in our government, in the U.S. government. Um, and they were established by presidential decree and not by Congress, not by law. And so all of the authority that is carried by the Department of Labor, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Education, Department of whatever, Department of, Department of, Department of, is really an extension of the president's authority. Okay, and so he's divided. And this is what, this is really kind of drawn out of what Solomon did here is that he took his authority and he divided those responsibilities up that each of these would answer to him. And this is, of course, a pattern that's going to be picked up. We're going to see it when we get to Nebuchadnezzar, right? In the book of Daniel, what does he do? He says, well, it's a huge kingdom, and I'm going to select the best and brightest, and I'm going to set them over, and, and they called satraps there, uh, S-A-T-R-A-P-S. And uh, so he divides the authorities, and then finally he says, well, and above them are going to be just three. I want to have just three answering directly to me. I don't want to deal with a hundred. That's even too many for me to really, I'm going to hold three men responsible. So I divided my kingdom into thirds, and then they each have um, their, their um, aids as well. And so essentially what we have set up here is somewhat of a bureaucracy. We're out of the, out of the uh, monarchy. Now we have these individuals with their authorities and their layers of responsibility. And again, our conclusion is that this is an aspect of the wisdom of Solomon. You say, what is the third evidence of that? Is the wisdom that he's not going to try to judge everything himself. He's not going to try to micromanage and run everything 
but rather that he recognizes that the necessity of putting good men around him. And these are good men. And unfortunately, that's not going to be the case with very many of his children. Uh, they choose not to listen to the good men that Solomon has surrounded himself with. And in fact, one of the problems right away with Rehoboam is, who does he listen to? The young guys. He listens to the young new guys who have their own interests. They want to make a name for themselves instead of the old wise guard set up by Solomon. I mean, when do you just ignore the administration that is set up by the wisest man in the history of humanity, and you ignore that? I mean, the wisdom didn't go very far. Somehow it didn't get, it's not genetic, let's put it like that. <laughs> okay? It didn't go from father to son. Um, this is a gift of God, and... Uh, unique to Solomon, and Rehoboam kind of, sort of, but ultimately he failed because he asked advice of one group, but then he asked advice of another group, and this group kind of sounded good to him because we can all establish ourselves, and he divides the kingdom, and it all just falls apart in his hands uh, right away. Within one generation of Solomon, all this is going to just disintegrate into a divided kingdom. So, uh, we have these men established, and then we come to the governors. So in addition to the men that had these department responsibilities, he now divides up the nation, and, and it's very easy to see how this is going to be done. It's 12 governors. We know there's 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, so we have them uh, described by their region, specifically by their city uh, that they have here, and uh, they're going to have responsibility. Now, we look at this and we have two things. Number one, we think this is like a taxation, but it's not. We think in those kinds of terms because we think of government in those fashions. Uh, but rather, this is an opportunity for each of these regions to demonstrate not just a recognition of the king's authority, but also of their place in the national identity. So, differently than a tax, and we know that Solomon did tax the people fairly heavily. That's one of the statements said later on. And why could he do that? Why could Solomon tax the people heavily? Because remember Rehoboam's advice from his young guys, we're going to even put more taxes on you. And people are like, we're going to make, we're, Solomon extracted all this from you, we're going to extract even more from you. Well, why was that a problem? Why could Solomon tax so heavily? And why could Rehoboam not increase it? Well, Solomon could tax heavily because God was blessing the nation abundantly. And this isn't new, okay? This isn't something new. Uh, we actually learned this back in Genesis, right? There's a guy that took over a country where he wasn't born, and he extracted a pretty substantial portion from the people, and that was Joseph in Egypt. And Pharaoh's, after the dream of Pharaoh, remember seven bountiful years and then seven years of famine, what are we going to do? And, and Joseph says, well, you're going to have to find a guy, put him in charge, and during the seven years of abundance, he's going to have to set stores aside, so the seven years of lean, 
he can distribute it and save the world. And Pharaoh says, well, there's no one better than you, so you do it. And he gives him his ring and says, you're in charge of everything. And he was more like Pharaoh than Pharaoh in the land. Joseph was. Well, what did he have to tax them to have sufficient to feed not just Egypt, but it says he saved the world. It didn't just affect Egypt. It was the whole region of uh, what we call the Fertile Crescent uh, stopped being fertile. And everyone was traveling to Egypt because that's the only place you could get grain. Which means that for seven years, Joseph had to have taxed the people probably as much as 50%. Why? Well, because they were getting abundant harvest. That is, their income increased probably that much. They were having like double harvest year after year, after seven years in a row. And Joseph says, I'll take this percentage. I'll take this percentage. And people were willing to give it because they had it. They had that much. They had so much that paying that tax didn't really hurt them. Solomon could tax the people substantially because they had that much. God was blessing the nation substantially. Everybody was making money. It was like, uh, I don't know, let me think of a time period. Uh, my parents' generation, okay? Um, they, they bought houses for like $5,000 and sold them for like $150,000, okay? My parents' generation. That generation that was unionized and had factory jobs. And, and I remember some of the churches, they had... They had cabins on lakes. They had their winter place down in Florida. They had, they had, they had, they had. And these are people with zero education. They had union jobs in factories building cars and machinery and all kinds of stuff. And that generation uh, that was post-war here in America just, um, they were enriched. It was a powerful time economically in our country um, and uh, um, to some degree we had it and, and now it seems like it's dried up a bit well a lot <laughs> it's dried up a lot let's be honest a lot of those kinds of jobs are gone but uh, um, when we uh, look at this and say well how can you tax well you can tax when there's abundance when there is lean, it goes the other way. What did Joseph do during the lean years? Did they tax the people? No, it went the other direction. Now you go to the government, and, and interestingly, what did he do? Did he hand it out for free? He sold it to them. <laughs> Their own food. Now, I got to tell you, um, he really didn't need to tax 50. We don't know how much he taxed. Um, in fact, I had one economist that told me he would have taken about 25%, 30%. And if every Egyptian had held back the same amount, in other words, give Joseph 30%, I'll take 30%, we'll live on 30%, that every Egyptian would have survived. If they would have just followed and done what Joseph was doing, personally. Um, and so uh, he showed, you know, but we don't know, it does describe a little bit of the abundance. But here we have great abundance. So when we read through this and we hear these numbers, every day 
this kind of food was being consumed, this kind of tribute, if you will, or, or um, in-gathering was being made, and every, oh, I'm sorry, not, <laughs> every, every for, uh, in verse 22, now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 oxen, 10 oxen from the pastures, 100 sheep, you know, and we think that's the, what's being consumed, that's what's being brought in. And there's some question whether it's a day or month, but um, it's, it's a huge volume either way. And so when we look at this, we say, well, where, what, why is this coming in? And we find that each region, each governor, provided food for the king and his household for a one month of the year. And it was an opportunity for them to demonstrate their uh, blessing, their, how much they have. And it's kind of a pride issue of look at how much God has blessed me. We can do this. And there's almost, uh, some of the descriptions historically, there's almost a competition between the regions of who could do it better. You know, they took great pride in bringing this. This wasn't something they just drudgingly brought along. Oh, here's your 10,000 sheep, you know, and, and watched them. No, because they were all being bountifully blessed, this is, this is evidence that out of each of these regions, that this is just a sampling of what that was being brought in regionally, that these men were providing this, and then they would take 11 more months to get ready for when their month came. When my month comes, we're going to really take care of the king's table. Now, what does the king's table include? Is this just him and his family? And that family got pretty big, granted, right? Lots of wives, all right? Just him and his family? No, it included um, all kinds of people. It would have included uh, emissaries from other lands. What do you want them to see at your king's table when people come from Africa and Asia and Europe to sit at your king's table? What do you want them to see? What do we want to feed them? Cheeseburgers, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, what the rest of us eat. No, there's going to be a feast. And so this table is spread for emissaries from all over the world. Um, he is also including all of his administrators and their families would have all been there because a meal not only is a matter of sustenance, as we talked about this morning, it is a social necessity, it is, a, it is where business happens. It is where uh, national events occur. This is where, and especially when the guy sitting at the head of the table is the wisest man on earth. And if you think he just plopped down, ate his food in five minutes, says, all right, I'm going to take a nap. That wasn't what happened. This was significant events, and sitting at a meal for one to two hours was not uncommon. In fact, less than an hour was considered rude. And so they would come in, and we have all the administrators, and anyone that is under the king's protection was allowed. Remember that David opened his table up to who? Mephibosheth. Why? Because he was the last of Saul's line, and he wanted to show kindness to him, and he, and he says, you're going to sit at my table from now on. Anyone like that, that, um, was gonna, that Solomon um, 
brought under his own personal protection, says, you're going to sit at my table. And again, this harkens back to a guy named Joseph. Do you remember how significant it was that he invited his brothers to eat with him? And he gave careful instructions to his servants. Why? Because he knew their food issues. He knew their requirements on them. This is before the law, right? Law wasn't there to Moses, but he already knew these guys are shepherds, and we're not, and they have some instruction to be keep separate from us. And uh, but he shared his meal with them. That was huge. And so this was the expectation. And the wealthier you are, the more powerful you are, the more, frankly, you flaunt it. And you want to demonstrate that. And to demonstrate that, we have a banquet um, that is mind-boggling on a daily basis. Um, We're talking about hundreds being fed. Maybe thousands. Especially later on when you have all those women. You had a thousand wives. Get your, wrap your head around, right? Well, wives and concubines. There's a thousand people right there just with your family. Okay? And so um, get your mind around what we're talking about. These are enormous numbers because of the expansiveness of his kingdom. We're trying to describe how God has blessed him. Because remember, in the blessing, it wasn't just that I'm going to make you rich, but I'm going to give you honor. You have both riches and honor. So there shall be not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So it's not just that I'm going to make you wealthy. I'm going to give you honor. And so these 12 governors were honored to do this. They counted it their privilege to serve the king's table for their month each year. And yes, it kind of, you might say, well, it forms a tribute or a tax and certainly that is true. You can view it that way, but I don't see these men viewing it that way. And so we see that this is uh, going to be going on, and uh, we find that uh, as we go through this, this uh, list of cities and the men that uh, uh, put these together, put these meals together, uh, had... Uh, extensive relationship with Solomon on some of them. In fact, on one of them, um, in verse 11, Ben Abinadab, in all the regions of Dor, he had Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. So what does that make him? Son-in-law. I am son-in-law to Solomon. I've been, so their relationships are very intermingled. So you go through the description of these. These men were given these cities, and you're going to hear that. It's going to come up a little bit later on in uh, exchange for some things with Lebanon. You're going to hear Solomon giving away some cities of Galilee that weren't pleasing to (laughs) the guy up there, Um, (laughs) to Bashan. Uh, But uh, um, he gives them cities. That is, you essentially have lordship under me over this region. And in tribute, you're going to provide your one month. And so these men had close relations with uh, Solomon, had access. Um, and uh, there's another one. I think there's, let me see. That was a, where was that? That was 
Ben Abinadab. The other one is Abinadab. Fifteen. Ahimaaz in Naphtali. He also took Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. So these men have privileged access to the family of Solomon, to Solomon himself, and uh, this is a great honor for them. And uh, we find that they're willingly do this uh, year by year, each each on their assigned month. And not only was there great wealth, not only was there great honor, there were also great multiplication of people. Um, And so we come to verse 20, it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, Eating and drinking and rejoicing. We're going to have to spend some time on that because of our Sunday morning message but uh, series. But they were numerous. No one wanted to count them. Remember, David tried, and God judged him for that. And so one of the evidences of God's immeasurable blessing was the multiplication of the people of Israel. And so as Solomon reigns, as the economy comes up, and we're going to look at their trade here in a minute, Uh, their economy blossoms and builds and builds, so also does their multiplication. Whether everybody had, I don't think everybody had a thousand wives, obviously, but certainly there was a polygamy going on, and there was this multiplication that that is reminiscent of the couple of generations that Israel, three or four generations that, Israel was in Egypt. They multiplied so quickly that the Egyptians became afraid of them because of their number. And that's the scale we're talking about here. Uh, And so when you think about a guy like Jacob having 12 sons, you begin to get the picture. Now, if each of you had 12 kids, we'd have a pretty substantial church. Get busy. Well, you guys are. Some of you are. Okay. Start adding that up. If you have 12 kids, let's see here. We got the Maycumbers. We got the Chavezes. Brummets are too old. You're just old now. We got the Gonzaleses. We've got the Bumphreys. We've got the Roberts. That's just, let's just say those five had 12. You got 60 people. Plus those five, ten. So you have 70 people just in five families. Yeah, that's just men, boys. Because Jacob also had some girls. Sisters. Remember the sisters of the boys? The place was brimming with people. Not just wealth, but people. And... Um, I don't think it's a mistake that the season in our nation that we had such economic boom was also when we had population boom to the point that we call them what? The baby boomers. We had all those babies. And then suddenly we had all this increase of wealth from the, in the 50s and 60s, late 40s, but the 50s, 60s especially, um, we had this increase, and we had an increase in population as well. And so 
Israel was seeing that. Can that kind of population happen in a generation or two? Yes. And what's tragic in our world today, and perhaps one of the reasons our global economy is so weak and struggling and gasping, is because our global birth rate has declined substantially in this generation, in one generation, to the point that some nation states are in jeopardy of disappearing if it weren't for immigrants coming in. Germany, I think, is one that desperately, and it's sad because the only ones that are immigrating in there are the Muslims, and they're going to take over, and Germany's going to be a Muslim nation pretty soon um, because Germans stopped having kids by choice and also, to some degree, physically they've been unable to. Their, their, their ability to have children has diminished. And so when we look at that, and you say, well, where's America on that scale? And I did that scale with you. Um, what nations, uh, by the way, the American scale is right on the bubble. We are right there. And so why do I advocate um, that we should be making it easier and easier for people to get here? It's because um, uh, we don't really, we don't really need a wall if we just made immigration like it was when our forefathers got here and they just got to the island, processed them, and bring them in. Make them, make them Americans. Um, and in this generation means give them a number and set them to work. <laughs> but to make it easier to get in. Let's not make it so difficult to become an immigrant. Then they don't have to be an immigrant. Then they don't have to be illegal. Because they can get here easily. Just show up on a boat. Head to Ellis Island. We'll process you through. Give you ID cards. Bam. Because we're on the bubble of not having enough children as a nation. But there is a nation, and by the, and, and Haiti, I was dismayed by how lack of babies there were. Um, because they actively wanted to decrease their population. They said, well, God already did that by a quarter million in one day with an earthquake. There is a nation on earth that has the highest, one of the highest national birth rates right now, and I told you what that was. Which one is it? No, Israel. I India actually is diminishing too. They've cut back their birth rate. Israel. When we went to Israel, you know what we saw? Children, young people, everywhere. Everywhere you went, there were kids, 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 from teenagers all the way down. Kids everywhere. And one of the comments my daughter was making, there's all kinds of people my age here. And this isn't college. <laughs> Even at college, it says, lots of people are old. It's like, well, yeah, because they didn't go to college right out of high school. They're not my age. Where are the people my age? Well, we slaughtered millions of them in this nation through abortion. God says, I'm going to bless you. Part of that blessing is they multiplied people. And so in verse 20, there was numerous sand of the sea. And what are they doing? Is it Solomon, the only one that's living high in the hog? No. He is a representative of how God is blessing the entire nation. And it says the entire nation. What are they doing? They're eating and drinking and rejoicing. They bring their tribute. They, bring their, they pay their taxes and they're happy to do so. Because they have plenty. 
and they're enjoying it. They all have bountifulness. They are all satisfied and then some. And if they use the same plan of Solomon, they would be set for life as well with their savings programs or whatever, much like the Egyptians in the days of Joseph of the seven years. And so we find that not only was Solomon blessed, but the nation was blessed to the point that what we read later on was that silver in the land of Israel during Solomon's mid-reign was worthless. It was something you put on the streets as pavement. Can you imagine the people that brought all this silver to Israel as tribute and everyone's like, eh, big deal. <laughs> Throw it in the streets. It was counted as nothing. No silver. It has to be gold. It has to be precious stones. Um, and so we find him... Uh, this kind of wealth, and now we have that wealth multiplied through commerce with other nations because of the honor. The honor comes, the riches come, and then it just builds on itself, and we find him importing all these things. And, of course, among those things he imports, we have some problems with horses and chariots. Why? Because God commanded Israel not to have any chariots. Because when they go to war, they're supposed to depend not on weaponry but on the Lord, and so the most modern weapons of the day would have been horses with chariots. And God says, I don't want you to have those. But the evidence is that Solomon never used these in war. So what were they there for? Just a status symbol. The same reason you have a horse. Oh, yeah, you guys have horses. It's just a status symbol. You don't need them to work. You don't need them for any of that. It's a lawn ornament. Oh, but I enjoy it. Well, I enjoy my status symbols, too, you know, if I had a Mercedes. Well, I'm not really big on Mercedes. Let's get real serious. Rolls Royce. If I had a Rolls Royce, I'd enjoy it, too. But do I need it to get around? No, the little scooter does its job. And so does my old truck. Probably does the job better than a Rolls Royce, frankly. And so this, this, these were status symbols. And so all these things we list here, even the throne, the throne is very impressive. It describes that in chapter 10. It describes the, that you, everything you, every utensil at your table was solid gold. Um, everything you touched or saw of any value was gold, precious stones. We're going to see all of this is necessary for what we want to have happen for the construction of the temple. And while God is blessing the individual, the whole nation is being blessed but the whole nation is being blessed so that they freely and willingly and with great joy participate in building one of the most magnificent temples of ever. So wealthy will this temple be that it's going to be rated multiple times because it takes multiple times to rate it before you get down to actually excavating all of its treasure down all the way to the bronze that was there. And so God is setting the stage. He's setting all of this up so that now the people can express their thanksgiving to God by the construction of a temple that is more than just a status symbol. It is evidence that this is our way to express that, it, that what we are receiving from him is from him and not of our own making. 
We didn't create this wealth. We are not foolish enough to claim that. Solomon didn't create that. God says, I will give it to you. He didn't create the honor. God did. Just as Solomon didn't cause the wisdom, God gave it to him. He asked for it. And the blessings are there to accomplish a purpose. And if you get the idea that God just wanted them to be rich and, and have all of this um, uh, just because he felt generous to that generation, no, there was a purposefulness there. His expectation was that this would do several things. We're going to visit one of those things when we come to the Queen of Sheba after our temple series. And it's going to be, you're going to be a lighthouse to the nations. All these people are coming to you. What are you going to tell them if you're the wisest person on earth? Are you going to tell them about Jehovah? Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides? When you are providing this incredible feast every day, you're going to tell them about your God. And they're going to go home with that information and they're going to share with their people. So there's an evangelistic element. There's also the element of the building of the temple. And so why does God bless us? He doesn't bless us just so that we can, um, you know, walk, strut around in, in you know, finery and, and all of these uh, status symbols, but rather he does it so that we can use that to reach others and to bring him glory, to serve him with this. And Solomon's going to do that. He's going to use these to serve God, both through sharing his wisdom with the world, not just his countrymen, and building a temple to honor God. And so he's going to engage himself in these things. And so let's look beyond just the decadence of all of this and understand the purposefulness of it is that God might bring glory to himself through their blessing, through their um, wealth that uh, go, seems to just go on and on and on. And yes, why do we need the status symbols in Solomon's um, stables? Um, because that's part of the nations honoring you. He never used them in war, didn't need to. God gave him peace on every border. So what are they there for? They're there so that when they're visiting people from other nations who value highly those things, see that you have the best there is anywhere, they'll go, wow. And then when Solomon talks to them about his God, back then they always associated your national status with your national deity. And in this case, it is the one true and living God not a whole bunch of different gods. And they got to be introduced to that. So of course there would be chariots and horses, status symbols, because that's what the national, other nations would have been looking for when they arrived. Even down to monkeys. I pick it on you guys with your horses, but even why do you have monkeys? What do you need apes and monkeys for? Why do you need a throne that looks like that? Well, he didn't, but it was the expectation. If you're going to go to the greatest king on the planet, you expect to see these kinds of exotic things. Um, just like when you go to the White House, you expect to see some things, right? Um, you would be pretty ashamed if you went there and it was you know, just this shabby little place. And compared to some, it is kind of a shabby little place, actually. But... but uh, Compared to some of the palaces in other countries, um, in Egypt, some of the palaces we saw there were just incredible. 
But um, when you... Uh, when you recognize why he has all this, it is a drawing card that the, they are seeing the sights they expect to see of the greatest king on the earth. And he's not a king that's conquering you. He's not a king that's attacking you. He's not a king that's, that's interested in that. He is a king that is giving out wisdom. He's singing you songs. He's teaching you proverbs. He's telling you about God. This is a whole different creature than what any of the other empires ever looked like, even down Egypt, even Babylon. All those, they were conquerors. Solomon's not doing any of that. All these people are bringing him stuff and bringing him stuff and bringing him stuff and bringing him stuff in exchange for they want to hear the wisdom of God come from the mouth of a man. And he's not going to let him down, as we're going to see when we get to Queen Sheba. It's going to take us a while, because we got a lot of weeks to work through the building of the temple, because that's next here in 1 Kings, which is really what I've been pressing to get to um, and looking forward to doing with you. Let's have a word prayer. Lord God, we do thank you that you are God that does things intentionally. And we thank you for this period of time where you can glorify your name through a simple request by one man. And that all the nations could have access to the truth of who you are and what you can do and how they may relate to you. And Lord, we also thank you for the evidence of the willingness of the people to not only enjoy your abundance, but to share of it with their king and their God. And Lord, we do pray that we might, as we think of the spiritual abundance that we have that far outstrips anything Solomon had, that it might be evident to those around us that we have this that others do not, that they might see the wisdom of God in us and see your multiplied blessing in our countenance, in our attitude towards work, towards government, towards society, um, toward you. And they might ask a reason for the hope that is in us because they see it. And Lord, we pray that we might represent you to the nations. And it might be evident in our eating and drinking and rejoicing that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we have a salvation that excels anything this world can offer. Lord, we thank you so much. We pray that we might, like Solomon, be willing to share that with all that we encounter. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.